Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Shreya Gupta and Magna Kashyap, and we're presenting you a special episode covering the Association for Women Surgeons 2018 conference in Boston. We'll be chatting with the AWS leadership, Dr. Celeste Hollins, our outgoing president, Dr. Sarah Perengi, our current president, and Dr. Sharon Stein, president-elect. We also um, got an opportunity to talk to Dr. Smitha Sihag about her research for which she re she's a recipient of the AWS Foundation grant, and Professor Robert Bourdon, who led a session on negotiation skills. Enjoy this episode. We're joined now by Dr. Celeste Hollins. She is a pediatric surgeon at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, and she is just finishing up her term as president of the Association for Women Surgeons. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's exciting to be here with you, and uh, it's an honor to be able to participate in this podcast. Now that your term is finishing, we wanted to talk to you about um, reflecting on the year. What are you most proud of accomplishing? What do you wish that you could have completed and hope that to see the organization do over the next year? Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot to think about. We have really done an awful lot of work this year through the Association of Women Surgeons, the council and the uh, executive committee. Our committees, Dr. Perengi's conference this year has been overwhelmingly the most successful conference that we've ever put on. Um, you know, Dr. Kibbe was speaking this morning and she was said, you know, obviously we're relevant, we're doing the right thing. And I think that's what I'm the most proud of this year is that we have the right leadership in place on our leadership council and our executive committee to be bringing those relevant projects and bringing them all at the same time so that it's magnified in what we can offer our members. Mm. I think what I wish I could have done more of uh, was international outreach. That really was something I was very interested in. However, we've laid a nice foundation with our new management company. We did manage to take a delegation to Ireland and work with the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, uh, where there were um, a group of women forming their own Association of Women Surgeons there to work with us. And we'll be going to Africa to meet with Lisa and Kosexa in December, uh, a delegation as well. So. We're laying that groundwork uh, and becoming accessible to women surgeons around the world even more. Uh, you are in pediatric surgery and the president of the Association of Women Surgeons. Don't see a whole lot of uh, w women surgeons in pediatric surgery. Um, for the people who are you know, thinking about applying into that field, how, how have you as a president of AWS tried to bridge that gap? Well, I think it's unfortunate uh, that people are places that they don't see a lot of women in pediatric surgery because there actually are a lot of women in pediatric surgery and it's a very friendly field for women surgeons and diversity in general among surgeons, not just based on gender. Um, pediatric surgery is hard. Uh, it's hard because it's emotionally challenging to take care of children. Uh, and to help manage their parents while the kids are sick. But it's very rewarding, and I think being a woman does sometimes help, although men can be very nurturing as well. It's not gender-specific. Yeah, so I think pediatric surgery is a great choice for women surgeons, and I don't see barriers to women being involved in pediatric surgery at all. Uh, the Association of Women Surgeons this year um, has 
has been working with other organizations and the American Pediatric Surgical Association has a group called the Benji Brooks Society and that is a group of women pediatric surgeons. We have seen that go from 10 or 15 people having lunch to over 50 to 75 people at the recent luncheons because I think we recognize the value of coming together and talking about common things and solving common problems. And many of us pediatric surgeons are involved in AWS and bring the AWS banner and resources to the groups within other specialty organizations. And we've put together an outreach task for Dr. Parangi for next year, and Heather Yeo is uh, heading that. And we're specifically going to partner with other organizations and the women's groups within the organizations to spread our resources out to help more women surgeons. I actually remember, I think it's on the AWS podcast, and Patricia Newman was on, and she talked about how it originated as a global group. It was Association for Women in Surgery all across the world. And, right. And so getting back to that is great. Yeah, I mean, we have um, 2,000 members from over 15 countries, maybe up to 20 now. Uh, we have interest in having international chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a, a challenge to, to do an international chapter, but the interest is certainly there. And maybe current events in the United States are shining the light, current events in Saudi Arabia shining the light on more progression for women mm-hmm. and the need for organizations like this internationally. Would you mind giving us a teaser to your presidential address? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, you know... With the generational change, we see less young people joining organizations, and it's been something that we talk about, and um, a focus has been why, what, is, what are the organizations doing and how do we stay relevant? The Association of Women Surgeons, we have this conversation all the time, where there come a day when we're not needed? And when we first started or early in our time, we thought, yeah, that's our goal. We want to become obsolete because we want there to be no gender divide, no equity issues. However, I think you flip that around and uh, there will always be a need because there will always be things specific to women, things specific to other organizations, society, black academic surgeons, the Asian Association of American, Asian American Association of Surgeons, the Association for Academic Surgery, international pediatric endosurgery, each of those serves a specific group that is a more of a minority in the house of surgery. And staying relevant means delivering content that are relevant to your members, means sponsoring your members, mentoring your members, and keeping an eye on the culture of surgery so that we're diverse and inclusive. We appreciate you taking time to do this today. Amazing, yep. yes. We're now talking with Dr. Seahog. Uh, Dr. Seahog is a thoracic, uh, thoracic surg- surgeon at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital. She did her residency as well as her fellowship at Mass General Hospital. Uh, we we're very honored to talk to you today. Um, could you tell us a little bit, first of all, congratulations on the grant. And uh, could you tell us more about your research that you're, you're conducting with molecular profiling at MSK? Sure. Thank you very much, Shreya and Megna, for uh, including me on this interview. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here at the AWS conference. Uh, you know, I first learned about this grant through one of my colleagues and, uh, and mentors, uh, Jambia Boland, who I also trained with. And, uh, you know, she had gotten the grant a few years ago. And then um, 
you know, had told me about it. And so I really want to strongly encourage uh, folks to try to apply for this grant as uh, it really only goes to a woman surgeon. There are not a ton of us obviously out there doing, um, you know, high level research. There needs to be more of us. And, uh, and this really is a great segue into getting other mechanisms of funding uh, as well. So what we're working on at MSK is really, um, you know, looking at esophageal cancer. Uh, and in particular, you know, since the, you know, the big results of the CROSS trial came out in about 2012, 2013, uh, showing that chemo, radiotherapy, and surgery uh, together had an improved survival over surgery alone, uh, you know, there's really been almost no progress on this disease. And it's a very aggressive disease, and five-year survival still remains quite low at uh, less than 20%, really, on average across the country. So, you know, I really entered into this space because I saw that there were very few surgeons working in it and there was a lot of room for progress and not just on a basic science level, but also on a surgical level. It remains, you know, esophagectomy remains a difficult, complex and very highly morbid operation. Uh, and so on both fronts, there was a lot of room for improvement. And so what I'm doing on my protocol, which opened in October of last year okay. at MSK, I've been there for about uh, nearly two years now since I finished my fellowship. And so what we're doing on the protocol is we're enrolling all patients with esophageal adenocarcinoma, locally advanced disease or early stage disease. So looking at the resectable patients uh, that we see as surgeons. And we are collecting uh, tissue and blood from these patients pre-treatment as well as throughout their treatment course after chemo radiotherapy and after surgery and also during surveillance. And what we're trying to do here is really profile these patients, um, their tissue as well as their blood and try and see if we can predict who actually responds to the treatment. We know it's a minority of patients, maybe around 20 to 25 percent, uh, that really have a very robust uh, response to treatment. And then the rest of the patients are really getting over-treated. They're getting all of this extra treatment uh, and not really deriving much benefit from them, from it, and, uh, and then undergoing a big operation. And we know that while, you know, we've shown that we can still keep our complication rate low, uh, these patients really get beaten up. And so the idea here is to try to match therapies. You know, this is really the precision medicine uh, uh, fantasy that we're, you know, trying to realize here that we're trying to match patients with the appropriate therapies. And right now we're really looking at kind of the major molecular subtypes of esophageal cancer, uh, as defined by the Cancer Genome Atlas Project, and seeing if those translate into differences in treatment response. And also, you know, obviously until we have kind of better targeted agents and newer agents uh, to offer patients, you know, we're still kind of hoping that that will you know, come down the pipeline. But in the meantime, even just tailoring therapy a little bit more precisely to patients uh, is going to, I think, go a long way. Do you think this will ever um, um, go beyond, above and beyond surgery? Like if patients, uh, you do the molecular profiling, fit into the uh, not the high mutation rate, but the low mutation rate and have like MSI or CIN, the things that you mentioned that have immunotherapy options or, um, available. Do you think that these patients could ever skip surgery? Like, yes. do you think we'll get to that point ever? 
Yeah, so a lot of folks, I think, are out there trying to figure out how to avoid surgery for these patients. And, you know, at least from our patients at MSK that had a pathologic complete response to chemoradiotherapy, and actually our rate is a bit lower than what the cross trial uh, and others found, you know, our rate is really in the teens okay. rather than in the kind of 20 to 25% range, um, though it's been a little bit variable over the years. Uh, you know, what we found in those patients is that if you don't resect them, they have a very high risk of local recurrence. And, you know, I think that the idea of avoiding surgery is a great one if you can, but I don't think that we are at a point where we, we should be depriving patients of surgery. You know, obviously a high-risk patient that has a great response to treatment, you know, that falls in kind of a different category. But for your regular patient with esophageal adenocarcinoma, reasonable risk for surgery, I think that uh, surgery should still very much be a part of the paradigm uh, of, their, of their care. Where do, you see, uh, where do you see the field of esophageal cancer uh, going forward? Yeah, so I think that, uh, again, you know, what I showed today, especially, you know, not very many people respond to chemoradiotherapy. Uh, and fewer yet may respond to immunotherapy. We'll have to see kind of what the numbers of patients with high tumor mutational burdens and MSI high status really turns out to be amongst uh, a large, large cohort of esophageal cancer patients. But, uh, you know, without any other newer targeted agents, you know, it's, you know, we know that trastuzumab for HER2 positive tumors and such are also options. But, uh, you know, really down the pipeline, we need new therapies for this disease. And I think that at the current state of where we're at, you know, we still only have, uh, you know, a handful that will respond to any number of the treatments that we have so far. And, uh, and that's why I also think that surgery is going to remain a big part of this disease for a long time. You know, it's a difficult operation to do, but, um, you know, it's an interesting one that spans two body cavities in the abdomen and the chest. And I think that uh, there is an art of doing this procedure well. I think I've had some great mentors to teach me how to do this type of surgery. Uh, and that if you can do it minimally invasively in a reasonable time frame, uh, I think the results are, are, not, are not so bad. Obviously, some of these patients are higher risk. Uh, and you know, if they don't heal their reconstruction, it's uh, pretty miserable uh, and a high risk of mortality. But you know, we, I, I do th like to think that we are getting better at it from a surgical perspective, especially at uh, higher volume centers. Do you do yours in conjunction with a surgical oncologist or you do it on your own? No, so at the thoracic uh, division at MSK, we do the whole procedure ourselves. So the approach that I take um, along with one of my partners, who's the director of esophageal surgery and one of my collaborators, Dr. Malena, Daniela Malena, uh, so we uh, both approach this through a laparoscopic and thoracoscopic approach. Um, we do have some folks doing robotics as well at uh, MSK, and I'm kind of interested in uh, potentially ramping up uh, with that modality over the coming years. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that given the volume that we see, uh, and given sort of some of these new techniques, you know, I think the outcomes are certainly getting uh, a bit better. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, sit down with us um, on this really nice day in Boston. Um, and we appreciate, uh, appreciate your thoughts and comments. Great. Thank you, guys. We are here at AWS with the current president of the Association for Women Surgeons, Dr. Saray Parangi. She is professor of surgery and an endocrine surgeon at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, thank you for joining us today through your busy schedule. Thank you for having me on your very successful podcast. I'm excited. Great. So first of all, congratulations on an amazing conference. Yesterday was great, and I'm only hearing great things about the sessions today. Um, so tell me about what went into putting together this conference and uh, talk about what you're most pleased with the additions that you've made to this year's conference. So I do think it was a successful conference. Um, we've been planning it for almost two years, believe it or not. We've had a very large um, conference planning committee of over 35 people. I know because I just wrote all the thank you notes. <laughs> and that was uh, definitely a large group um, to thank. But I do have to thank all of them. I think um, we started from the theme and we wanted the theme to be Dare to Be You. Uh, because I think a lot of people on the committee, myself included, felt that in the beginning, a long time ago, in the old, old days, we were told we had to change our personalities to fit into the world of surgery. And there were parts of our personalities and abilities that we had to sort of hide or sugarcoat or in some ways not put out front. Um, and I think all of us were not pleased with that. We wanted to be ourselves. Um, and we thought that we had, we as women and as individuals with different personality traits and skills bring a lot to the house of surgery. So we felt we wanted to go with that team theme, Dare to Be You, to um, make sure that people know that you don't have to be aggressive or a certain kind of way. You can be who you are and we will take you in surgery. That's a really great motto to have and um, it, it was really reflected in the content as the new president, uh, what are your main goals for this year? So I have three broad goals, which are centered around one theme. The theme is I would like to make AWS um, stronger by partnering with the right groups of people. And I want to make our partnerships strong and bring on new partnerships for AWS if they haven't existed. So, for example, I would love to strengthen our relationships with chairs of surgery across the United States. I believe that chairs of surgery in the U.S. and abroad want to include strong women in their departments. They want to enable them and empower them and make sure they succeed. I think where we have to work as an organization is how can we help the chairs? What can we do as an organization to make sure the chairs have the tools they need and are able to use those tools? And then what metrics can we give them about their programs to see if this aspect of their program could be improved? And I think in general, the chairs have demonstrated through this meeting that they want to support women surgeons. They gave us almost $100,000 to run our meeting. That is a first, and that's a sign to me that the chairs want women surgeons to succeed. 
just in monetary value, that's a huge success for us. And I think what that means to me is that we have to work with them more closely and engage them more closely and try to see where they need help. The chairs in this country have a lot of very difficult decisions they have to make every day around money, RVUs, workforce, and the one area, diversity and retention and burnout, these are areas we can help them with. And when they have a happy workforce, everything will improve. So they really are invested in it, I believe, and there are areas we could help them with. In addition to working with the chairs, I'd like to strengthen the partnerships of AWS with other societies, both surgical societies and non-surgical societies, and again, work on some shared programs together so that it's not isolated societies working on the same programs, but many of us are trying to solve very similar problems. For example, in diversifying the workforce and making sure there's more equity, that's also true for underrepresented minorities and for the gay and lesbian community. So all of this, we have to make sure that we work together. And the third arm of what I'd like to work on this year is to improve the Association of Women Surgeons partnerships with industry. I think that our organization could do a lot better working with industry and making sure that we are represented as consultants and speakers and influencers with industry so that they can develop products that we're interested in and that we can work together as a team. Those are great I know goals. that was kind of a mouthful. <laughs> no, it was great. Um, so along the lines of partnership with the chairs, um, and I'm actually going to have you talk about the campaign, but you know, there were very few men at the conference, but there were men, which was great to see. Um, and so can you talk a little bit more about uh, if there are any initiatives to get more men into the conversation with the women surgeons? And also you can talk about the He for She campaign. So I do think that increasingly uh, many of us and many past presidents, I'm definitely not the first um, to notice this, is that of course, we at Association of Women Surgeons need the help of men to change the culture of surgery because that's where a lot of the power lies and that's where a lot of the um, uh, institutions are led by men. Um, what we've um, really initiated this past couple years is a drive for membership for men, for them to actually become members. And I've encouraged the chairs and will continue in this next year to encourage chairs to become members. And some of it is really for simple reasons. Um, if they're members, they'll get our emails. And then they know what we're doing and what our programs are. And they can pass that on to their woman faculty and their woman residents. So it amplifies our message. And I don't think they have to even physically be in the room. For example, we had, I've lost count, but more than 30 chairs sponsoring our meeting. Um, some were women, but the vast majority were men. And they didn't have to physically be inside the room hearing the lectures to be empowering their woman and their faculty to understand that they support them and they want programs for them. So um, through, through our joint efforts with the He for She campaign and these efforts, I think we've demonstrated we want men to join AWS and be part of our messaging. That's great. So kind of the final question, over the years, uh, 
what are the positive things that you've seen changing as far as the landscape for women in surgery? There are so many things, honestly. I think it would be, you know, we could have a whole separate podcast just about that. But the most remarkable things, I think, are just the culture of surgery has changed. Um, it's a warmer, more welcoming, less hierarchical specialty. I think the fact that um, women residents are giving us the prime life of their years, their childbearing years especially, um, has changed a lot. Before, almost nobody had kids during uh, residency, and now um, I have this habit of generally sending residents um, a, a small gift, and uh, I think I could really bankrupt my own uh, self at this <laughs> point. So I think um, a lot more women residents um, are um, daring to have children in residency and are great moms, and the um, uh, landscape has changed. We are um, putting in policies, uh, parental leave policies, paid parental leave policies, um, and I think that will make us stronger in the future. But some of, some of the positives things I've seen are centered around the comfort level of the woman residents and uh, the fact that they're able to have children and not feel like an outcast in, in the departments. Another thing that I feel has been a very positive thing in surgery in the United States is that uh, increasingly women have uh, joined uh, the ranks of leadership at various places, uh, at the American Board of Surgery, um, at the American College of Surgeons, and also in department chairs. Um, just a few years ago, when the Association of Women Surgeons went to make a website and list the um, woman chairs of surgery, um, we really couldn't even count up to 10. Um, we had actually regressed, because a few years ago we had about 13. Um, so it had gone backwards, and that was very depressing. Now that website is so over much more positive place. We have over 20 chairs of surgery, and it's only going to get better. And we have women surgeons in every leadership position, and that's also only going to get better. So I think having that happen is a very positive thing for surgery. It's wonderful. Really glad about the progress and know that there's a lot of work yet to be done, but happy with where things are going and happy to see a conference that's booming like this. So thank you very much for everything that you do and thanks for being with us today. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed the interview and thanks for thinking of coming here and um, interviewing with us at AWS. We are now speaking with Professor Bourdon, who is a professor of negotiation skills at Harvard Law School. And Victoria Gershuni is a resident at um, the University of Pennsylvania. So uh, they're joining us today after uh, completing a negotiation kind of boot camp skills training session at the AWS. And so Professor Bourdon, first of all, can you just give us a little um, snippet about what you talked about during the session and, and what you think is important for negotiation uh, for anyone, but then also specifically for women? Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me. And uh, this is a really fun morning. So um, I am thinking of myself as a negotiation imperialist. So I think all life is negotiation. Um, and I think one of the messages I hope to convey today is that anytime we're trying to influence anybody in any kind of decision making, 
So whether it's for a job or in our personal lives or even with patients, um, we're negotiating. Um, so it's a really central skill um, for physicians, for surgeons. Um, today, what I also really tried uh, to do was help um, the participants think about how could they prepare more systematically for negotiation? How could they measure success uh, better? Um, and I shared some information, particularly on some uh, gender differences. Um, the research on gender and negotiation is really complicated. Um, it's quite mixed. Um, but there are some differences in terms of um, outcomes when women and men are negotiating on behalf of themselves, um, really not discernible differences when women or men are negotiating on behalf of others. Um, but then there's this big challenge in um, the world around what's called gender backlash, um, which is that because of um, systemic, um, sometimes explicit, but often implicit biases, um, women who engage in the same behavior as men uh, will sometimes be penalized for that behavior in their negotiations. Um, and that penalty actually um, is imposed by both men and women on the other side of the negotiation. So we talked a bit about that. Um, also, participants had a chance to actually practice their own skills and, and do a little bit of a debrief. And then we heard from some uh, panelists and department chairs and hospital administrators about some of the opportunities and challenges for negotiating within the hospital context. Great. That was a great summary. So Victoria, how, what, what were kind of the key things that you took away from the session? Uh, well, I think that uh, Professor Bardone did a really good job of giving a nice framework for how to structure your negotiation. Uh, in the medical field, I think one of the disadvantages we have is that we focus so long on applying for a position that is limited and just being excited or happy when we get accepted. Um, without really any room for negotiation. So we don't really have any practice or prior life experience uh, for the most part to you know, develop negotiation skills. So one of the things that I think was really helpful was really trying to understand what, it, what we are able to negotiate for when we're looking for a job and then also you know, identifying both your own interests and the interests of the organization that you're trying to become a part of in order to understand where there are opportunities for mutual gain. How prevalent is it actually, because you, you did say that, you know, when you're advocating for yourself, there is definitely a gender difference. And um, we hear about it a lot that uh, a woman who is a little more... Um, what do I want to say? I don't want to say aggressive, but like, you know, a little <laughs> more aggressive. act. Yeah. A little more aggressive about saying, you know, I need this salary or I want this or that, um, that it's to their detriment. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, like how really, how often does that occur? Yeah. So, you know, one thing we have to remember is that everything is contextual. It depends on the person with whom you're negotiating. Um, and, you know, in the organization. Um, so the research obviously is composite. It's not individual negotiations or individual. Um, having said that, um, I, I do think that um, there's an, enough evidence to suggest that really aggressive, um, overly assertive behavior can cause less good impact for women. And what some of the research has shown is that um, what a way to kind of shift that is 
um, to speak more about the ways in which um, giving the woman asking for something, what she's asking for will help the organization, will help the staff. Um, so speaking uh, about we instead of me. Um, but I also think this goes to something that I, I mentioned and feel very strongly about, which is how important it is that uh, training go beyond just speaking to women about how to negotiate, but really doing work around, um, with HR offices, with department chairs about systemic and implicit biases, because I think that um, the more awareness of that, right, we know from tra training on systemic biases and that it doesn't eliminate those biases, actually, but there is a de-biasing effect. Mm -hmm. So I think the work has to be uh, a both and, not hmm. not if you only negotiate this way, it'll be better for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought one of the takeaways for me as a woman who will be negotiating at some point is um, not to... You know, what multiple people said this, but don't focus on this idea that we aren't necessarily good re um, negotiators. Because when when the research uh, is actually looked at, it shows that women are good negotiators. We're just not necessarily good at representing ourselves. So uh, one way to kind of skirt or you know sidestep around the issue of getting emotionally involved and potentially escalating and seeming aggressive or uh, harsh or any of those lovely ways that people describe women who act in an agentic way. Um, rather than doing that, instead, like uh, Professor Bourdon said, like develop your criteria. Understand why you are going to be fighting for a particular thing. Like Why is something a fair number? Have your reasons, do your research, um, and know that there are industry standards that you can use as benchmarks. And then once you understand why you deserve this or you think that you should be getting this particular number or package, then you need to actually show the person in a calm and reasonable manner how you provide value and why you should be compensated accordingly. So um, I think that that was really helpful. You know, rather than pushing in and, you know, digging your claws in deeper, use a different strategy and give reason and logic. And it's hard for people who are reasonable to, uh, you know, oppose that. Yeah, I mean, so much of the, co when I do negotiation coaching in one-on-one, -on -one, and I will say this cuts across gender, right? It is um, really helping the person just have enough self-confidence in their own yeah. value <laughs> and their own and their own worth. Um, uh, because I think sometimes we can focus a lot on the power of the, you know, hospital, the power of the university. Um, and of course it has power, but in any individual negotiation, it's really they're also trying to persuade you, um, and and so therefore, kind of having a sense of what you bring to the table, what you need. Yeah, and so along those lines, do you think that there is some impetus to develop your brand or you know market yourself a little bit before you go into these negotiations? Like, how important would that be? Sure. I mean, I absolutely think so, and I think you know a little bit in negotiation, we we have this concept that we call BATNA, Best Alternative to a Negotiated Agreement. I mean, part of what I hear you saying, right, developing your brand um, in some sense is improving your desirability for others that are n not the party you're necessarily negotiating with. Um, and I think that can help a lot. I mean, ultimately, I want to be focusing in a negotiation on how do my interests and the other side's interests align in the way to create value. Um, but 
having a, having enough um, possible away from the table alternatives is always helpful, and brand building I think helps you to do that. That's great. Any final thoughts from either of you? But don't be afraid to negotiate and know your worth. I think that's important. Like you're saying, it's I think we're used to, or at least women tend to undervalue themselves a little bit more than men, and so don't be afraid to that you're being presumptuous by asking for a fair value. So the last thing I'll say is that sometimes it can be really helpful in preparation to do so with a trusted colleague, um, somebody who could remind you of what you bring to the table, and also to do a bit of role playing with them as well. That may sound silly, um, but can be really productive as a way of of helping you understand what might be coming and how you you can respond um, when it does happen in the real negotiation. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Bordone, and um, we look forward to having a full episode with you on the podcast in the future. I look forward to that as well, and thanks for having me. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, We're continuing our coverage for, uh, at AWS Boston, and uh, in presence we have today Dr. Sharon Stein. Dr. Sharon Stein is a colorectal surgeon, associate professor at Case Western Reserve University, um, and my mentor for the last two years. She did her uh, medical school at um, University of Colorado, um, residency at uh, MGH, followed by colorectal fellowship at New York Presbyterian Columbia. And we are very uh, honored to have you on our podcast today. So uh, Dr. Sharon Stein will be the president-elect of AWS starting today, actually. And our first question to you today would be, what, are, what is your vision for the next upcoming year of AWS? So um, this next year is really going to be about uh, Saray Parangi, who is going to be our president's uh, vision over this next year. Um, she's really excited about partnering with a number of different groups. Some of the groups she wants to partner with are the women chairs and chairs that are not women and helping them to become better leaders. Um, some of her other ideas are about partnering with um, corporate um, sponsors, because so much of what we can do in medicine today is dictated on where the money comes. And to be quite honest, a lot of the money comes from corporations and our corporate partners, and trying to figure out how to work with them better is something that's really important. The third area she really wants to collaborate with um, would be with different organizations. So we're really looking at the Association of Women Surgeons and our fight to get parity and to increase diversity, not just about being women in surgery, but about being a very diverse workforce, which includes minorities, includes people of different um, self-identification in terms of gender, all of those types of things. People who maybe don't want to work the same way that surgeons worked 20 years ago, you know, 24-7 without a break. All of those are really important in maintaining a diverse workforce within the field of surgery. Our podcast gets out to not just uh, the residents in the United States, but as well as internationally. And there are so many women surgeons internationally uh, who gain inspiration from people like you who are on our podcast. Uh, you This afternoon and tomorrow afternoon, you're kick-starting uh, kick the AWS coaching project. Tell us a little bit more about it. So and this, how can people get involved in it? This is a really, really fun idea. Um, so this idea, actually, I'm going to give all the credit to uh, Andrea Merrill, who was part of the coaching project that was going on at Massachusetts General Hospital. And Carrie Palmara, who is actually an internal medicine um, physician and is wonderful, created a coaching program where the attendings within the program actually coach the residents within the program. 
And the idea about coaching is a little bit different from your usual models. When we think about sponsorship, well, that's of course, okay, this person, Magana, would be great at um, doing this job, this role, or Sharia would be great at like kind of putting things onto something else. Coaching is a little bit different. Coaching isn't, okay, which project should you, how should you actually do your research, or how should you actually um, apply for that next job. Coaching is giving you the skills to teach yourself. So it's a little bit like teaching a fisherman how to fish, right? Or a potential fisherman. The idea is it's very reflective. It's a lot more listening and then bringing things back to the coachee or the person being coached um, for them to make their own skills. So they've been doing this in Massachusetts General Hospital within internal medicine and some other programs and they expanded it to surgery. Andrea Merrill, who was at that time the chair of our resident committee at Association of Women Surgeons, said, wouldn't this be a great idea instead of a mentorship program, that Association Women Surgeons creates a program where we can coach people. And one of the really cool things that we're implementing into this program is that we're going to coach people remotely. So right now it's in an introductory um, uh, phase. We actually got a very generous grant from the Physicians Foundation and we're very grateful um, for them. It's a two-year project that's going to do research into looking at women faculty remotely coaching women residents or um, at this time and uh, right now that's only within the United States unfortunately we'd love to see if this is successful that it would be a really nice model so you could coach someone in Pakistan you could coach someone in Zambia you know wherever you are because you don't need to be in the same place so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be training the faculty how to coach um, their residents the coaches or, or potential coaches are divided into two group randomized um, in order to be the same in terms of things like burnout, in terms of uh, satisfaction with work right now. And half of them will receive a coach and half of them will get kind of standard ideas of how to build resilience and prevent burnout. And over the next year we're going to coach those people and see how they do and we're going to do a second cohort next year in 2019. So when you ask how can people get involved, in 2019 we're going to be looking for both coaches to train again and potential coaches. And again, 120 residents will be entered into the program. 60 of those people will be aligned with coaches and the other 60 will be um, aligned with uh, just traditional ways of preventing burnout and re increasing resilience. So congratulations on the scientific session. Um, there, for those of you who haven't uh, seen the program at AWS, there was a new scientific session where mentors uh, chose a resident to present landmark papers in the various surgical subspecialties. And I think that you know that's a new concept to me to, to do something like that, to enhance mentorship amongst faculty and residents and even with the senior discussant. So congratulations on that. Can you talk about like who formulated that idea? Where did that come from? Right. So one of the basic premises of the Association of Women Surgeons is engage, empower, excel, right? And we want to see all of our female colleagues and male colleagues be the best that they can be. One of the things I have always found within the Association of Women Surgeons is the ability to actually network and meet people and have the opportunity to really engage with people in a just a more concentrated way than you might have it just walking by them at, you know, American College of Surgeons or doing things like that. Um, is really important. And so the idea behind the landmark papers was that we wanted to have a team of people working on it. So there was a resident, 
there was a junior faculty member and then there was a senior faculty member. The senior faculty members did the discussion weren't quite as hands-on, but it was a great opportunity for the resident and that junior faculty member to really work together to say, what are the important parts of this paper? What do we want to be presenting? And that's an experience you don't always get on a one-to-one -one basis. It put both of them on the program, gave them both opportunities to exceed in a national um, national conference and then the discussant you know you get an opportunity to, to interact with the discussant and hopefully they all had conversations afterward and I thought the residents just did a, a really awesome job yeah. so that was actually Saray Perengi's um, idea she really wanted to instill a little bit more academics to our national mm -hmm. conference and I, I thought it went really nicely yeah. this morning it was excellent it was very very well uh, done congratulations on a great turnout uh, at AWS and hopefully we can all continue this going into next year any closing remarks for our, for our uh, listeners? No, I'm really excited. Next year I'll be leading the conference, which is super exciting. And um, we're going to be talking about sculpting our future, both as individuals, how can you be the best you can be, and then as an entire profession, how can we make surgery the best that it can be. So I look forward to seeing you guys all in San Francisco in 2019. Yeah. All right. Sounds great. Thank you very much.